Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce our next guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. Okay, so this week we have Mika Brzezinski. Woohoo! Very cool, very cool. Yes. So most people know her as the co-host of Morning Joe on MSNBC, but she's also a best-selling author and the founder of Know Your Value, which is a movement she created with NBC Universal that aims to empower women to know their worth and get the paychecks they deserve. I've had the benefit of receiving one-on-one Know Your Value life advice from Mika. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she can be pretty tough on you when she feels like you are undervaluing yourself and deliver some hard truths. But she is great at sort of seeing when women are doubting ourselves, spotting it, calling it out, and giving you practical advice for what you can do about it. And I was actually reading some of her advice during the pandemic, which I found super helpful because it's like a really tough time to evaluate your own value and understand like what's appropriate, given that there are so many people, especially women who have lost their jobs and suffered so much this past year and a half. Mika pointed out in a previous post that we should be reading the room. And if a raise isn't in the cards at our company right now, maybe there's something else we can ask for, like flexibility or more resources, better benefits, which I hadn't thought about. Yeah, it's good advice. It's really good. Yeah. But now that things are thawing a little bit, she says, you know, it might be time to ask for more money. But the really great advice that I saw was that we need to make sure that we're really explicit when speaking to our bosses right now because so many of us have been working from home. So a lot of the work that we're doing is probably out of sight, out of mind. Um, So we really need to just explicitly say what we've been doing and why we are valuable, especially during this past year. It's really good advice. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think women sort of do what they think is expected of them. Mm -hmm. We might also expect that people are aware of it. Yeah, that's why I wanted to have Mika on right now. I thought it was such a good time, given that this is kind of like a new phase where we're moving towards with the pandemic thawing, as I said. And I know you felt the same way of bringing her on right now. And also, as women are facing this, the huge challenges because we had the biggest job losses mm-hmm. during the pandemic as well. But there's another reason I wanted her on now, because I've been following her recent Know Your Value work, where she's partnered with Forbes to create the 50 over 50 list to highlight women who've achieved success later in their careers or making a serious comeback in their careers after 50. And the list is coming out in June, so it's just a few weeks away. And it's funny because I've heard Mika say she spent most of her life thinking that she was going to be unemployed at 40 or 50, that she had like an expiration date stamped on her head. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of women have felt that way. And I definitely didn't know what it is that I would be doing in my 50s also. So interesting things keep unfolding. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Can't wait to talk to her about this new project too. Awesome. Should we get to it? Yes, ma'am. Mika Brzezinski, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. So there's like sort of three topics I want to talk about today. One is kind of your own trajectory because it wasn't this linear line to big Mm -mm. success. Mm -mm. No, it was not. Two is uh, walking the walk and women supporting other women. This is something that I have benefited from my own life because Mika Brzezinski walks the walk when it comes to supporting women. And then the third thing is women remaking themselves. You're doing this very cool project, 50 over 50 with Forbes. We had this great concept of women pacing themselves, which I love, particularly what younger women can learn from. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote that book, Comeback Careers with your sister-in-law about you know women making big gains, big success after the age of 50, and also just kind of like a pandemic reset. So those, yes. are, the, those are sort of the three big topics I want to talk about. Does that sound good? I love it. 
Yeah, yeah. That sounds amazing. But I'm going to start with sort of like the first big piece of advice I got from you, which was like a little bit of a rude awakening in 2016 during the Clinton campaign. Uh oh. Yeah. I remember your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what you said to me, I was complaining about how low campaign salaries were at the Clinton campaign. And Brooklyn was really expensive. And I didn't say that I was making less than the men or anything like that. I was just saying that campaign salaries were low. And you said, stop. You don't even have to tell me what you're making. I can tell right now you're not making what you're worth. It's written all over your face. (laughs) That's so mean, but true. (laughs) What did you see written all over my face? Just kind of like disappointment that has been kind of woven into your soul. I mean, there's just, it it was a look that you just know you'll never get what you want to get and it's not going to happen. And so there, and I've seen that look everywhere in my career and I've had that look and it is a very kind of self-defeating look because I think what women do often is they self-sabotage when they're Mm -hmm. negotiating. They don't do it the way men do it. Men do it really well. And there are some lessons that we can take from men. But, you know, we live in this world of wanting to please and, you know, hoping to get that pat on the head. Yep. Like hoping to get noticed. And after years and years and years, you kind of become like tired because you're doing all this work and you just kind of know that maybe it'll get noticed and mentioned, but you're not getting the value for it. So it feels kind of empty and. The other way I would describe that look is kind of heartbroken. Mm. This is the first time I've asked you to describe like what that look looked like, right? And to say you're here, you say it looked like disappointment. I did not realize that's what I was projecting, right? Although I I have to say, Barack Obama once said to me, I have no game face. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's okay. It's true. It's true. But what I had thought I was doing, you know, it was self-sabotage because I had convinced myself that I didn't care about some of these things, that I didn't care how much money I made, that that wasn't important to me, that I just wanted to be a good member of the team. And I just wanted to be valued for what I did. And it didn't matter if I had the right title or the right salary. You mm-hmm. know, that was like other people got caught up in that kind of things. And I didn't need that. Right. That's what I had convinced myself. I didn't need that. You and a lot of women actually think that yeah. it's untoward even to need that. And no, actually, you need those things. You need money and you need a lot of it as much as you can make at all times of your life so that you can support your family and feel that you're getting the full value back out of the relationship. But for some reason, we have some weird notion that it's somehow a higher calling that we're answering to. Nope, actually, no, it's business and you need to make money. We had those expectations for ourselves. And I think we put those expectations on other women, right? Mm -hmm. We're like, why is she caught up in money? Or she should be doing something for the good of it. Right. We expect women to do things for free. Exactly. The good of it. Really? Is there any man on the campaigns that you've worked on who's there for the good of it? Of course, you're there for the good of it, but you're supposed to be paid your value. And Jen, you're literally top tier on any Democratic campaign, you should have been paid for the past 10, 15, 20 years top tier salary. And I bet that didn't happen for most of it. It did not happen for any of it until the Clinton Mm. campaign, in which case I was the highest paid employee of the campaign. Okay. Well, that hurts my ears, the part leading up to it, but the end is good. (laughs) So tell us about the trajectory of your own career from local news to CBS 
You were fired from CBS in 2006 and then had your big success. I've been in this business a long time. And when I started in local news, it was at WFSB Channel 3 in Hartford, Connecticut. Coming up on Eyewitness News at noon, Olympic skater Oksana Bayul has a date with West Hartford. I was a freelancer, and I finally worked my way up to the morning anchor and made my way finally to CBS as an overnight anchor. Mm-hmm. I think I was like 29 years old. I had had one baby. I was working on the second, and we moved so that I could work in New York and my then husband could still work in Connecticut. And I was commuting an hour, starting at 9 p.m., working all the way till 5 a.m. It was the 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. show on CBS News Network. This was my big network break. And again, let me explain this break. The money was pathetic. There were no benefits. It was freelance still. I still had not graduated from freaking freelance. I took it. And I ran for it and I anchored the overnight show and I was so tired. And I honestly, I look back at pictures of those days and I hurt when I see myself. It doesn't feel right to get your big network job, but it's in the middle of the night and it's freelance and you don't get benefits if you have a baby. It wasn't like what it looks like when you read about it. (laughs) So I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I kept working, a very hard worker, did the show. I got pregnant with my second child. And there was a real come to Jesus moment about priorities and pacing yourself. And it was, I was 30, 31, maybe I just had Carly. It was a challenging pregnancy because I was overnight. It wasn't her. It was the overnight shift on my body. And I gave birth and I didn't have paternity leave. I was so concerned about money, so concerned about being replaced that I went rushing back. Maybe she was eight weeks. Maybe she was 12 weeks. It was too early. My body was saying no. My baby was saying no. My everything, my entire sort of body clock was saying, you can't do this. You're never sleeping. And I went back to the job. I was unhappy in the job. I found myself crying in the bathroom, things like that. That shouldn't be happening. A few weeks after my maternity leave, I came home. I rushed home. I tried to sleep for a few hours, but it was a Friday. And then I had to let the part-time babysitter go. And I kept her up on the third floor of this old house that had a lot of mold. Uh, It was in Yonkers, New York. And I run up to take my little Carly and pay her. And I'm talking 100 miles an hour. I'm so tired. And I'm walking. And I fell off literally the top of a staircase. And I tumbled down this entire flight of stairs with my baby bumping down the stairs every step of the way. My entire back felt like maybe something had broken. Something was very wrong with my child. And I rushed to the hospital and I, I could barely like breathe. Everything was happening so fast. And I, I somehow got her there myself and... I remember bringing her in and I was crying and I said, I fell down some stairs and there's something wrong. And they checked her and sent me home. And I had this weird, strange, sick mom gut feeling all the way home. And I kept questioning myself because I was so tired. Like, it must be tired. She's okay. She's okay. They say she's okay. But I knew she wasn't okay. And I'm like, I'm going to call my pediatrician. He's great. And as I'm on the phone talking to the lady who answered the phone at the pediatrician's office, I'm taking off her little onesie 
And I'm noticing her entire body isn't moving, <laughs> except her head. Like from the neck down, nothing's moving. So I become hysterical. I tell them to call the hospital. I'm going back. I keep her completely in the position she's in. I go running in. They're like, ma'am, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to get in line. I literally lunged at the neck of this man who was in the reception area. And I dug my nails into his neck. And I said, this baby needs to be seen by a doctor right now. She's not moving. They like took me seriously at this point. They bring her in. And then within five minutes, five doctors are around her and I'm being pushed out of the way. And I hear them calling spinal cord experts in and trying to get one in from another hospital. And I remember like, literally, it was like a movie. I kind of lean against the wall and I start sliding down the wall until I'm literally face down on the floor. And I can remember the granite floor of Lawrence Hospital. And I'm crying so hard, praying that I haven't maimed my child because I was rushing everything. And I'm like, please let it be me. I'll stop moving. Somebody please don't make it that I've broken her back. Long story short, not to put you through all this, but hours later, full MRI, full everything. She is a broken leg, nothing else. Broken femur. And She's going to have to be in a body cast after she's in traction, <laughs> which is just like, what? So she was in traction for five weeks and then in a body cast for eight weeks after that. But before we even get to that, I'm investigated for child abuse because babies' femurs don't break unless you're going down a staircase, jumping on top of them by mistake. And, you know, who believes that that's going to happen? A baby comes in with a broken femur. So I had to go through that interview and get checked out on every level. And I just remember absolutely hating myself every single moment of every day and suffering extreme depression because I really did blame myself for being too tired, for going cheap on everything, for trying to get back to work, for making it the focus, and for not listening to my body. And Carly is fine today. She's just graduated from Dartmouth and she loves to hold it against me. You know, she wants some money or something. But to be honest, and she would say this too, it's impacted our relationship every step of the way. I never was the same after that. I worried about her too much. I fed her too much. I ran after her too much. I always had this reaction to this trauma that stayed with us for decades. A lot of times psychiatrists will ask you about a child and they'll ask, what kind of baby was she? What were the things that happened? These are important months and they're not to be flipped around and, and thrown off, blown off as, well, they're in diapers. You are bonding. <laughs> and bonding does not include falling down the stairs, okay? Um, and spending eight, you know, months in traction and a body cast. I mean, as a family, we found a way to move through it and to regroup. We were all traumatized. Our Christmas picture was somewhat, you know, dark humor where we we're all around Carly. And she's in a body cast and it said, Merry Christmas from the parents of the year. <laughs> oh, yikes. But, you know... We were all really, really shocked by it, and I have never gotten over it. I've never gotten over it. And so 
my message in the early days of Know Your Value to young women was to remember to get married, remember to have those babies, and remember to take that time seriously. That's about the most important decision and time in your life. Take it very seriously and put a big frame around it and do whatever you, you can to be there for it, not just do it. Be there for it. Be present and take care of yourself. And what I love about 50 over 50, the Forbes partnership, is that I can say to women, really honestly, you have time. You've got a long runway. If you want to have that baby, have that baby. And if you have to go into debt, enjoying that time with your baby, that's okay. Understand that you're banking important time, not only for your baby to grow, but for you to develop confidence in yourself as a parent. Because if you don't have that, and then you're a wreck at work. I mean, I was a wreck. Right. I didn't quit, but I came really close. And actually, my ex-husband, Jim Hoffer, who was an investigative reporter in New York City, gave me the best advice. And he's like, you love your career. It's okay to love your career. You don't want to resent motherhood, but you have to balance it better and we'll do it. And we did it. We worked hard to do it. It was hard. We were both reporters on crazy schedules. But there was a lot to talk about after that moment. I'm just like rocked by that story myself. I know. I'm like, it's bad. Ugh. I mean, all I of that. I have to breathe. Yeah, all of that pressure. I mean, all of that is just. Well, and it was self-created. <laughs> I know women now that are still trying to do that. Please, please, please calm down, <laughs> take it slow, pace yourself. And I know that we're all looking around us saying, I don't have what this person has, but hold on to what you have and build. Your time will come. I think you and I probably both didn't have this. And what, what you're telling us we should have is a sense of building, as we just said. Yes. I think we thought we had an expiration date, right? There was a mm -hmm. time where the wall would drop and it's like, you were no longer marketable. You're no longer. Right. Um, yeah. We felt that clock. Tick, yeah, you also tick, have that tick, clock. Tick, tick. Yep. And the clock is a bit contrived by the time we get to now, 2021. Because if you look at 50 over 50 and all the sublists and categories, we had 10,000 submissions. There's a long career to be had. There is no rush. I think what I looked like was desperate, actually. Right. Yes. Okay, I need some time to decompress from that story and all the advice packed in it. So let's take a break to play some ads and we'll be right back with Mika Brzezinski on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Mika Brzezinski. Mika, I want to talk about the point where you really hit your stride, which I believe is when you started Morning Joe. But let's take a step back to where you were right before that. You mentioned you worked in local news, um, then anchored the overnights at CBS News, and then did a stint at MSNBC, back to CBS. Tell us about what that process was like. When you talk about all the years before Morning Joe, they all felt like half-baked successes like I kind of squeezed my way in the door or I didn't really feel I should be there or I was doing too many things at once and mm -hmm. nothing really well. And right. I always felt like I was hyperventilating and I wasn't yes. good at what I did. And at the time I had been fired from CBS and I couldn't find a job for a year. I really wanted to have a job, but I walked around with like, I was fired written on my head, which doesn't help 
you know, like if you walk in there going, <laughs> you know, looking like you were fired, I was fired. But men walk in there and go, I was fucking fired. And yeah, screw them. I'm going to yeah. burn them down. And my advice to women is not to do that. Press reset, move on. You're good. And if you don't think about it, they won't. That is so true. It's so true. If it's not on your mind, if you're not projecting it, if you're not bringing it up. Correct. People have their own shit to worry about. They're not thinking about <laughs> you. And I thought they were all thinking about me. But I became, you know, really like I basically thought it was over. And so I took matters into my own hands and actually found an authentic moment for myself in my life. And I called up the networks and I was like, hi, it's Mika. Yes, you know me. Um, and MSNBC, I called MSNBC and they're like, listen, we know that you worked at 60 Minutes and you were an anchor. We don't have a job you would want. And I said, I don't care about what I want. Just tell me what you have. Okay. And it was part-time, freelance. <laughs> Is there a theme here? Freelance on a call basis, reading news cut-ins on MSNBC overnights. Oh my God, overnights. <laughs> and I'm like, I'll take it. It was like late nights and some overnights. And Jen, you know what? After that year out in the woods, finding nothing, getting nose, I was the happiest person on earth to be walking into a building in Secaucus, New Jersey and going boop with like a little tag that says I work somewhere. And it was such an easy job. I was so good at it. And everyone at MSNBC, where I had worked seven years before, were like, you're really good. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a business of such unbelievable day traders. You guys have no brains. You literally do not think five minutes ago because, you know, I was there seven years ago as a host and I did the 2000 battle for the White House 24 hours a day, co-hosting with Lester Holt and anchor buddying for Brian Williams. They totally forgot. So anywho, I'm Amazing. reading cut-ins, <laughs> but that was also when the morning three-hour window became open because of Don Imus and some inappropriate comments that were made. The Rutgers women basketball team, that whole yes, thing? Yes, that whole thing. Wow. And long wow. story short, they started auditioning people and Joe came up to audition and he asked And Bill, Joe had like Scarborough country at the time, right? He, he had did. I did cut-ins for his show, but my mm -hmm. cut-ins were like in a vacuum. Like I would sit in this little room and say, you know, Scarborough country would go to commercial and then it would come to me. And I'd be like, I'm Mika Brzezinski and MSNBC headquarters. Here's the news. And I'd say like three things in 30 seconds or less. And I'd say now back to Scarborough country. And I didn't even know what it was. And then I would see his face come up and I'd be like, oh my God, these guys, Dan Abrams, Joe Scarborough, Doc Block. I, I what, who are these people? And they're, they're yelling at the TV, but okay, I'm just going to do my news cut in and then I'm going to go do my bills for the next hour. And I was happy. And I was actually like totally at peace. I'm like, I don't need anything else. This is good. But then in the, in the meantime, that three-hour window opened up and Joe actually had the idea that I should audition with him because I met him in the hall. And he was like, hey, I'm Joe Scarborough. I know you're Mika and my friends in Florida where I'm doing my show. My friends tell me you're making fun of my show. So I know you're making fun of my show. And I'm like, I swear to God, I, I couldn't make fun of a show that I don't watch. And he was like, wow, uh okay, do you want to audition for this show with me tomorrow? Like, I don't know what it was about the sort of moment, but he just thought the interaction was funny and honest. 
and authentic. And he was sort of tired of TV the old way. Mm-hmm. And he convinced Phil to have me audition. So Phil is Phil Griffin. He was the president. Phil is Phil Griffin. So we start doing the morning show and I'm so tired. I'm like, this starts at 6 a.m. Really? But the minute we started the show, I was like, oh, shit. This is going to be really good. It was Joe. It was me. It was Chris Licht, Willie, Mike Barnacle, Matt Buchanan. I mean, it's this incredible cast of people who all did not think more of themselves than they should, who were all just totally chill with the moment, who were comfortable in their own skin. And we just talked in a way that was incredibly innovative for the moment. We didn't stick to time. We went on for 20 minutes about topics of great intellectual importance on phoners with Walter Isaacson and just put photos over it. We did not care about creating TV. We just did what we wanted to do, which was talk. And the show really kind of took off. It got a lot of buzz. And we were signed to contracts, Joe, Willie, and me, within that year, covering, obviously, the Obama campaign and all of that. And it just became Morning Joe. I think, quote, breakout moments in a woman's career are kind of annoying because it suggests women just came out of nowhere instead of that they've been working on their career for decades. But I have to say, I totally remember this moment that really stood out to me as one that catapulted both Morning Joe and your career forward. And it was when you refused to read this story about Paris Hilton on air and actually shredded the script on camera. That was the beginning of it all. And then we, of course, have Paris Hilton. Right, that's why. Right. I've ripped up Wait, the previous don't. Paris story. They're right. leading with it again. Are they really? I'm not exactly. doing it. I'm not doing the story. That was really, that defined the show. So explain what happened there, because it's like, for me, that marked kind of the beginning of Morning Joe, because I was like, this woman is going to do this differently. This is like, yes. Explain what and happened. Joe and Chris really created the, the concept for the show mm-hmm. in terms of long interviews, talking a lot with really smart people. But then I had to do a newscast, which had some lead stories. And we would read a few pieces of import from around the world. And the top story that day was freaking Paris Hilton getting out of jail for her DUI. And we had a lot going on politically that day. You know, two key senators, one who's my neighbor, coming out with some pretty stern statements about foreign policy. Definitely should have been our lead. And I just was like, I I would be talking about that. I would be talking about what's on the front page of the New York Times. But no, apparently I'm not supposed to. And I'm supposed to read this Paris Hilton story. I'm not doing it. And I ripped it up. The next hour, they tried to give it to me again. And I grabbed a lighter. Will you burn this for me, please? I will not. (laughs) Of our stage manager, actually, that Willie had. And I tried to burn it. And then I put it in a shredder, ultimately. And I got in trouble with NBC management. They wanted me to come in and apologize (laughs) for not listening to the producer. I was actually being put in a position to apologize. But I went home to sleep. And I woke up to my BlackBerry exploding and it was papers around the world, you know, wanting to interview me about the Paris Hilton moment. I thought like maybe I wasn't going to have my freelance job anymore. And now this is like trending. I didn't even know what trending was back then. (laughs) And I remember two incredible things happening. Number one, my dad called me from Croatia. 
where he was making a speech. And he's like, Mika, what are you up to? He said he had done a press conference after a speech with all this Croatian media. And all they were asking him about was me and the Paris Hilton. Yes, in Croatia. And he was like, what did you do? You totally stole my thunder. And uh, I was joking. He was very proud. And then secondly, I got called into NBC and I was sat down with the same vice president who wanted me to apologize. And she is in the middle of my apology. She gets a phone call, comes back, offers me my own hour on MSNBC. Because they may not be able to craft something that works, but they recognize it when it happens. Yeah. But then that extra hour on MSNBC became a know your value moment in itself. Because here I was doing the nine to 10 o'clock hour. Joe and Willie would be like stretching and they'd be done with Morning Joe after what we learned, which was our last segment. And about a year later, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm giving up real estate because you're not paying me for it. Okay. And you're like exhausting me. I need to be fresh for this show. Everyone else, you know, gets to choose what they do or gets paid for the extra that they do. Right. I'm not. So so you were already doing six to nine, the three of you together. Yeah. And then they gave you an hour you, of my it's own. It's like a pie yeah. eating contest. Yeah. And the, yes. the, yeah, it's like, yes. and the prize is more pie. That's it. <laughs> That's it. I remember this. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so then you did that on your own from nine to 10. And I'd be happy to do it again. I just need to get paid a lot of money. I mean, right. I'm just saying so, like that it didn't make sense the way it was happening back then. Okay. So tell us about your, like your own, know your value, like negotiations. So they were you, like learn how to do this. Cause, so, cause <laughs> yeah. Cause I feel like this is like, was like what I hear you saying now is like, I was doing the work that I wanted to do in the way that I wanted to do it and was demanding to get paid for it. Those are like three things that would like liberate all of us. The sad thing is I was still traumatized by being fired and by being out of work. And while Joe and Willie totally recognized the moment of this show and dragged out their negotiations, like didn't answer, didn't call back, yelled at Phil if they didn't like the number. I would hear Joe on the phone yelling at Phil. I'd be like, oh my God, you can't say that. And he's like, why? And he'd use all these F-bombs. And I'd be like, but, but, but. And Willie once didn't show up. I'm like, where's Willie? It's an empty chair. He was in negotiations and he was like, I'm going to show you what the show looks like without me. I was like, what? You, what? I would be so scared. Who would do that? <laughs> Name one woman on the face of the earth who would do that. Maybe Zero. Brzezinski, you would well, do that now. Now I would. And I did ultimately, ultimately. But what I did back then was horrendous. They gave me a contract and I grabbed it and signed it. Like literally, I was like, ah, I'm back in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't negotiate. I, I couldn't believe it. So meanwhile, six months after my signing, these guys are still negotiating and I'm hearing numbers because we're covering a presidential election and Joe's on the phone. We're all in the car. And I'm like, these numbers are crazy. Okay, how did I not get these numbers? And on top of it, men make stuff up, Jen, in their negotiations. They lie like a rug. Okay, so like Phil and Joe are talking and Joe's like, you don't understand. You need to pay me more because I'm going to beat Imus. Imus was the highest paid show on the network. How does he know he's going to beat Imus? He doesn't, right? So women, we're like, gosh, darn it, I hope I can please you. And we'll do our best ever sure to like try to be as good as the last. And, you know, 
our language and our thoughts are ridiculous. And if we come with a ton of information, it's actually based on reality and it's undernumbering us. Meanwhile, guys come in there with stuff based on zero reality. Like, how does he know he's going to beat Imus? He didn't when he was Scarborough country. And this is the incredible part of this. Why would he even say that? I mean, they're thinking, no, you're not going to beat Imus. And no, we're not going to pay you as if you're going to beat Imus. He's like, fine, 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 fine. Don't pay me as if I'm going to beat Imus. Tell you what, tell you what, give me this base salary. But if I beat Imus, every quarter that I beat Imus, give me this massive sum of money, okay? And they're like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do that for you, Joe. Guess what we've been doing for 13, 14 years now? Beating Imus, like, by a long shot. And that's what we did from the beginning. Like he started getting those huge bonuses right away because he made up in his mind that he would beat Imus. He thought big about himself. We don't. This is something like we can learn a lot from men, you know? Yes. I talked to the musician Liz Fair. She had this like really breakout album that came out in 1993 called Exile in Guyville. And she modeled it after Exile on Main Street. And she was like, just channeled Mick Jagger. Yeah. I mean, we should be ourselves and we shouldn't yeah. force ourselves to act like men, but we can learn a lot from modeling, you know, some of what well, we do after them. The other thing is that men press reset. Like Joe and Phil will be in a huge fight. They'll scream F-bombs like crazy over negotiation and then be able to laugh about a, a baseball game or a show they're watching. Right. And, you know, if we have a bad experience with someone, we're like thinking about it in the next meeting with that person. We're stuttering. We're like, ha, high voice, you know, like... No, press reset, move on. You want to know why men are really good at the reset? It's the same reason why they lie in job interviews. They can't remember anything, so they make it up. They don't remember the bad moment. They don't care about the bad moment. I will say this is the value of a woman over 50, over 60, and over 70. And this is why this list with Forbes is so powerful. We are at 50, 60, and 70, finally there with men, where we don't care, actually, what others yep. are thinking of us. We don't have time for small talk. We don't have time to remember a bad moment. And we know it doesn't matter. And what bothers me is it takes so long to figure that out. Right. But at least this incredible list of women is going to show younger women that you've got a long runway. You can make some mistakes. You can get nicked up. But don't worry. You'll be back. You'll learn to press reset. You'll learn to negotiate that salary. You'll get it right. Keep trying. Keep practicing using that voice. What did you finally do in your negotiations that made the difference? So I kept going back. And in my book, Knowing Your Value, which I re-released after the Trump years because there was so much more to add, but you'll see that I go through all the things I did wrong. I went in there crying. I went in there complaining. I went in there dramatic when I had no drama. I went in there acting like Joe. I actually like yelled at Phil and, you know, tried out F-bombs, which sounded so weird coming out of my mouth. And I like poked his chest and he poked mine. And we both were like, what is going on? And he like called Joe after that one and was like, is she okay? Like, is she crazy? And it was because it was, none of it was authentic, but I kept trying, which was, that's good too. And good. Yeah. yeah. And then I finally just figured that none of this is going to work. Like this is a moment that I realize that it cannot be like the last, all the many other moments in my career where I was kind of holding on by my fingertips and not feeling like it should be there. 
that I needed to be paid and treated like an equal member of the Morning Joe crew and that I was ready to walk. And I do say to women, if you're not ready to walk, don't go in there ready to walk. But I was. I was ready to deal with being unemployed again. I was sure I'd come back. I knew I was good. I also knew the show was nothing without me. We all were nothing without each other. We're the longest running anchor team on television. And there's a reason for that. We're great together. And I went into Phil and I was like, hey, Phil. And there was something in my voice and my eyes that made him double take. And he was like, "Uh uh-oh. And I was like, I just need to talk to you for one second. It's really important. Here's the bottom line, okay? I need to get paid a lot more. Here's the number. It can't be lower. It can't be higher. We're not negotiating. I need a number and this is it. And here's why. You and I need to get married, okay? And he's like, awkward, awkward. And I'm like, sorry, this is the only way I can look at it because you're one of those bad boyfriends out there You get his dry cleaning, you make his dinner every night, you're living with him and you think you're going to get married and he never marries you. All of you TV executives, you're bad boyfriends and I need you to marry me or this relationship is over. This may be awkward, but let me put it in very plain terms. I'm not going to be at work tomorrow. You're going to have Joe all to yourself. Okay. (laughs) Good luck with that. But I'm dead serious. Like this relationship is over unless we can figure out how to professionally consummate it, okay? (laughs) And it was done. I could tell right then my number has had been made. Phil got it. And I remember the first day I sat on the set after the whole thing was signed and I was making this money. And it was so important. The money matters. I all of a sudden just got so good at what I was doing. I was good before, but I had like a presence that I had never witnessed in myself in my life, but it was a presence of being valued, knowing I belonged and making really good money. And so it does matter. Yes, the money matters. You're not wonderful if you don't need it. Actually, you should want it. You should have it and you should always demand it. And, (laughs) you know, I remember when I actually told Phil I wanted to write the book, I wrote about all my interactions with him over the years, including that one. And we sat down and read the manuscript together in his office. Joe was lying on his back. I was sitting on the floor like crisscross applesauce with all the pages in front of me. Uh, Phil was going through the pages, walking around his office. And he was like, okay, I think everyone can learn. I think this is good. There's one thing. I got one change. And I'm like, okay, this is going to have to be a huge change because who would have only one change in this book? Where he's like an antagonist, protagonist, and hero all at once. But it's not, you know, it's honest. And Mm -hmm. he's like, okay, that part where I call up Joe and I say, is she, and I think I added instead of an F-bomb, freaking or something, or I put another word in. And he's like, you know, I use the F-bomb. Come on, man. You got to put that in. (laughs) Well, good for him. And I was like, oh my God, really? (laughs) This is it, Phil? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, you know, that was that moment. It was awesome. And I'm like, okay, I can make that change for you, Bill. And yeah, I don't want to say he let me publish it because I would have published it and he knew it. And that's why the moment was all the more beautiful because we were all like, we can grow. That's how it happened. Ultimately, it was four tries over the course of several years. I love that story. All right, that's a good time to take another break. We'll be right back with Mika Brzezinski on Just Something About Her. 
Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Mika Brzezinski. So we've made it to our third topic, women making a comeback. Mm -hmm. And there's two things here. There's your work with 50 over 50, Mm -hmm. women who may be restarting their careers later in life and thriving. And then there's the pandemic reset. Mm -hmm. It's pretty connected. I saw you had a segment on Morning Joe about the economic impact the pandemic has had on women. You know, more than two and a half million women have left the workforce since the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. And many are worried about how to get back to work. Especially black and brown women, where there are some really, really bad numbers about how many are peeling out, falling out of the workforce and not coming back. So for me, massive shout out to all the companies, to the Forbes 50 over 50 list and all of our partners to start looking at these issues and start talking to these women and start trying very hard to find ways to keep them in the game. A lot of the problems that we've seen during the pandemic, obviously, were structural. They were at home. They had their kids. They can't do everything. Some of them literally were wiped off the face of the professional earth. Their lives have been obliterated. It has been brutal on women. But it is up to companies right now at this point to start having much more clear conversations about how they can help and how they ask questions to these women so they can uh, get some answers that actually gives them something tangible. It's a very, very tender time for women who have fallen out of the workforce and trying to get back in. It's also a tender time for women over 50 who feel that they are either falling for the age trap like I did or truly feel discriminated against and put in a box because of their age. You know, we're having ongoing conversations on Morning Joe and with the women that we are choosing for this list on Forbes that we are showing women who are paying it forward to other women and making sure they are lifting up those who have fallen, those who have fallen out of favor, or those who never knew they had value in the first place. We have to work hard to prove to women their value. They don't get it early on. It's a very difficult process for them. And I have found that I've had to be very inventive in my attempts to prove that to women who should be doing better. And I literally reach out to them and and tell them this. (laughs) You reach out to me and tell me this. And you reach out to me and tell me this and say, come on, Morning Joe, and talk about that. I mean, first of all, I think that the book that you did with your sister-in-law, Comeback Careers, Mm. um, is really helpful to women now. It's really great, but it has very practical advice about like, the list that you need to make and how you have to think about yourself and the experience that you have and how it might translate. And mm-hmm. so I think that's really useful. And that's a good example is you brought your sister-in-law in to do this work with you, gave her equal billing. You do this with your associates that know your value to put their bylines in. I mean, I have come to learn that, you know, when women fail, it like drags all of us down. And when women succeed, it lifts all of us up. Mm-hmm seems like you look for ways to bolster the women that you do come into contact with and work with. Yeah. And I, I kind of urge, you know, women with any type of platform to really put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. I did this book with Daniela Pierre Bravo, who's on our show. I, earn it. She's incredible. She's got her own platform now. And in that book, with all the work that she did, and all the incredible point of view that she's brought to know your value. So to give her that real sense of her own value, I literally like forwarded the check for the book to her and had her take the money so that she would be lifted up financially. 
And that was something that I think it seemed a little weird, but I'd say do it if you can. Um, thinking outside the box right now, probably shouldn't say this, but I will. I'm trying to figure out what Alexi McCammon's next job is. She shouldn't mm-hmm. be not working. And right. picked up the phone and I started just talking to her because I'm really, really taken by what has happened to her. I think that this situation that she's in is important to me. And so literally from zero, she and I are talking now twice a week, trying to figure out the next move. And I believe she will do quite well. But I'll often put myself out there and take a risk on someone. And I've sometimes gotten burned, honestly, but it's worth it. I don't give up on people ever, 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 ever. You really don't. That is a good place to end. I mean, Mika, this was fantastic. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Sarah, are you there? What did you think? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, like, so emotional. So emotional. Yeah, I was not expecting that story. And it's such an emotional story with such a clear takeaway, which is like, pace yourself. Pace yourself is a real contribution to womankind from Mm -hmm. Mika Brzezinski. We feel like we have an expiration date. We're like worried about getting as much of your career as you can before you have children and then like trying to get back into the workplace. But all of it is presented with this sense of panic, you know, that you have, that there is this very condensed time frame in which women have to succeed and prove themselves And this notion of pacing yourself and having faith that will come back around, you know, that some of the lessons that you're learning in your 20s and 30s are going to pay off in your 40s and 50s and like giving women some maybe some peace that they can do that, they can come back. I mean, that story about her daughter Carly is just devastating where there's just like so many friends I have that, you know, are dealing with, you know, same kinds of pressures, I think is really, Mm -hmm. really helpful to women. We get all these messages as women, as young women specifically, that we have like this finite amount of time in our 20s and 30s where we're not like old and decrepit and useless (laughs) anymore. Like we get that messaging with our biological clock. We get that messaging with being in the workplace. That's why I thought it was so important that she's doing this 50 over 50 thing to see that there are all these women that are blossoming in their careers after age 50. We can start to see that that is a possibility, that there is a long runway, as she says. Yeah. I also, I mean, I thought she just always has such tangible ways to negotiate that you can take with you. You know, she's not just like, know your worth. She's like, know your worth and here's what to say. I feel like the story of her watching Joe and Willie guys do their selling negotiations with MSNBC and then her sort of like fits and starts with that where she's like, I'm going to go in there like they do. And that didn't quite work out, but she watched what they did and then took the elements of their approach that worked for her. And like, finally, it was like, not surprisingly, when she was truly willing to walk away and like walked in with like, you know, confidence, understanding what her value was, being clear in her own mind, as well as with, you know, her boss, Phil Griffin at the time, what she was bringing to the table and really being prepared to walk away, right? It was like the combination of those things that made the difference. You know, we're always looking for ways that we can actually learn from men because, you know, they are doing some things, right? We don't have to model ourselves just like them, Mm -hmm. but we can take from what they do and adapt them for ourselves. 
One of the ones that I want to take with me because I'm not very good at it, I hold things very dearly in my heart, is when you are negotiating and you might get into heated conversations, you might be saying uncomfortable things, just press pause and do your job as you normally do. And whenever you speak to the boss that you might be negotiating with, realize that you're not currently in negotiations and that you can have these conversations in a separate like stratosphere, I guess. Because otherwise you carry it with you always. You're always anxious about interactions with this person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. I thought that was super helpful. But I think sometimes we're busy looking for the way that women can present something just so, so that like it gets our point across, but it's not offensive and it's not going to anger them. We don't want to ever frustrate Mm -hmm. them. And then you're not clear and you're not getting what you want. And like sometimes things are just going to be uncomfortable. It's not a big deal. Yep. And then the last thing that really stood out to me is when she was saying how when she finally did get the money that she deserved, she was better at her job. That really resonated with me. So good. When you just feel like you belong and that you're valued and that you have, you know, something to aspire to. It's really, I think that was so important to note. I mean, it's like the advice you get sometimes to act as if, like act as if you have all the confidence in the world and eventually you will. But like once it's validated that way, like, you know, when I actually got a book contract, I was like, I'm an author. (laughs) And then it's like my writing got better and I sat up taller in my chair and took myself. You don't feel like you're faking it anymore. I think sometimes not pushing to get paid what we're worth or what we want is a crutch to like hold back. Yeah. Not hold yourself accountable for your potential. Yes. I have Mm -hmm. definitely done that. I have definitely done that. And then like grumble after the meeting about like not being recognized or not being heard or. Yeah. It's everyone else's fault that, you know, they're not paying me enough. So I'm not going to, you know, achieve as much as I could potentially. Yeah. When I hear her talk about how much value she adds to that, show and like what that is worth. I look at her differently. I look at her with even more respect, right? It's contagious. It is contagious. And importantly, she does not do this alone, right? She has partners in this and she lifts her partners up too. Right. And like women's success begets more women's success and Mm -hmm. amen. So that was great. So helpful. Yeah. Thank you, Mika. (laughs) Thank you, Mika. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Mika Brzezinski for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 